When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The dream is made real. Ricky Hatton rocks the world. How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. It's over. Mamma mia. He's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. Uh. Welcome, fight fans, to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Sean Basto, joined as always by Johnston Brown for this new episode of Career Profiles. And it's voted for by you, the listeners of BTR Boxing Podcast and the people that voted on Facebook and Twitter. This is the career profile of Marvellous Marvelin Hagler. But before we get into the episode, as always, please go and follow us on social media at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook as well. If you've not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by checking us out on Apple Podcasts. Please go and rate us. Please go and give us a review on there. It gives other people the option to be able to see what we're doing, so it really does help. If you're not on Apple and you're an Android user, you can find us on any good available podcasting app out there. The Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM, Spotify. You can even use us on YouTube, on Eat Sleep Boxing Repeats YouTube channel. So, let's get into the episode then. As voted for by you, this is the career profile of Marvellous Marvin Hagler. So, the career profile of the Marvellous one, Marvin Hagler. Great pick from the users of Twitter and what a great poll to have put out about the Fabulous Four. What a great era of boxing it was and we've got Marvellous Marvin Hagler on top of that poll and we're going to be sitting down to do his career profile today, Johnston. Yeah, it's interesting that he won the poll. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I did think Sugar Ray Leonard would um, come out on top, but um, I'm actually quite pleased with Hagler um, and a great pick from, from, from those that are listening in and obviously that would vote. And um, yeah, really looking forward to, to getting involved in, and digging through the career of the marvellous Marvin Hagler. 
As always, we'll cover his career profile off. We're going to talk a little bit about the early years of Marvin Hagler, where he where he was born, where he grew up. We're going to talk about how he got into boxing, look at a little bit about his amateur career, and then obviously start talking about his professional career. And as always, we'll cover off some of the more significant moments throughout his professional career. Uh, before we get into the episode, of course, Marvin Hagler has been involved in two episodes of the Legendary Night series. We've done Hagler Hearns already, and we've done Hagler versus Leonard as well. So if you do want to listen to them two episodes and get a bit more of a detailed breakdown of them particular fights, go and find them on the feed. That's Hagler Hearns and Hagler Leonard. Detailed breakdowns of them particular fights. So let's get into it then. Marvin Hagler, born Marvin Nathaniel Hagler, May the 23rd, 1954. And as now he's known as Marvelous Marvin Hagler, he actually changed his name by law to Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Yeah, funny. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, his original original name was uh, called was Short Stuff. So, uh, Short Stuff Marvin Hagler. So, um, obviously, I think think somebody put it in a... In an article and put marvelous Marvin and he, he really liked that so uh, it stuck and he and he put it out there and eventually people started calling him marvelous uh, or or they weren't in the first uh, first point um, and then when he changed his name they had no choice but to so yeah it, it obviously he liked the name it sticks well it's got a nice ring to it and well we all know him as marvelous Marvin there well he grew up in Newark New Jersey and he was there in his early years of his life and then in 1967 between July the 12th and July the 17th there was the Newark riot so for the American audiences you will know this a little bit better than what we do but this was a significant period of time in history and as a result of them riots 26 people were killed and over 11 million dollars worth damage to property was caused including the destruction of the Hagler family home, which was like a set of masonettes or tenements is what they refer to them as in America, as we refer to them as like masonettes or flats. So as a result of that, they ended up moving to Brompton, Massachusetts. Yes, yes. Uh, eventually, I think they had family in, in, in Brompton, Massachusetts. Um, uh, they, they obviously, they wanted to give uh, the Newark projects and, and thankfully they, they were relocated to Brompton, uh, Brompton, sorry, Massachusetts, um, where... Um, Basically, Marvin grew up with his uh, brothers and sisters and uh, and his mother. Uh, their father wasn't around. Um, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't uh, moving to Brockton. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't uh, it, the, the, it wasn't much nicer, if you like, compared to Newark. But one thing he was assured of was that you know, the, 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 in terms of the shoot, what else was going on in, in Newark at the time during those riots? I mean, it was just less. It, it, was, it was like a less of a regular basis, if you like. But um, Still a tough upbringing in Brockton. It wasn't the easiest. Um, and he was a bit of a shy kid, a bit of a loner haggler. Um, and yeah, so so with him relocating, um, that is where he decided to obviously, um, you know, pick up his boxing career. Um, so it, ironically, I mean, I was sort of looking, at, digging in through the archives and, and looking at Wiki and whatever else there. I mean, Wiki always say that he walked into uh, into the Petronelli brothers' gym first off, which, which in actual fact wasn't the case. Um, so he actually walked into a gym that was run by a gentleman called Vinny. Uh, Vinny Vichani I'm not even going to try and pronounce his surname um, so he went into his gym for the first week and he sort of sat there bit of a loner as I say he didn't say too much no one spoke to him and he sort of watched what was going on and assessed the situation but um, in the end after a week he decided to to walk over to the Petrelli gym um, Patronelli gym brother's gym um, and that was where um, he obviously bumped into to Goody and Pat 
um, and then on the second night, that's when they come. They, they spoke to him, and if you want to be a fighter, then he said, "Yeah, that's what I'm here for." Uh, um, he basically turned around and said, "I'm going to be the next world champion of the world." So uh, it basically took off from there for Hagler. Something that I read uh, that was reported is that Hagler's introduction into boxing was a lot like some of the boxers who we speak to in, in this day and age, where a lot of them grew up either being being bullied or being in, involved in an incident which led to them being hurt by another person. And I read a report that in 1969, Hagler actually took up boxing after being roughed up on the street by a local boxer, whom apparently he later avenged. And this was in front of his friends as well. They were watching. So basically he gets, you know, st- this happens all the time. It still happens now. Uh, you get, you basically got beat up by a bigger, tougher guy for no apparent reason in front of all his mates and completely humbled him and completely, you know, as you said, he was shy, he was a loner. He, he was probably known as an easy target. He was probably looked at as an easy target back then, which is probably why that happened. If that is, 100% true, of course. But you were talking about him moving into, obviously, the Petronelli's gym. And that's where it really all began for him because his amateur career was a very storied amateur career. And it's something, when we think of Marvellous Marvin Hagler, we think about his middleweight reign. That's the first thing that springs to mind. The second thing that springs to mind is probably Hagler Hearns. But we don't talk a lot about his amateur career and we don't hear a lot of people talking about it. In fact, it was a really, really well-accomplished amateur career, weren't it? Yeah, it definitely it was. Um, I mean, he, he had the uh, the National Golden Gloves tournament, which he went into after a cut, spending a couple of years in uh, Petronelli's gym. Um, well, obviously, he, he, as I say, he walked in and uh, they, they uh, he didn't say too much and it wasn't until they, sort of, they got someone in the ring with him and roughed him up a little bit and then he decided actually whether he's going to come back or not. And he did, he came back and he, he was quick. To, to, to learn he was quicker than anybody else and within those two and a half years they they pushed him on to the to the national golden gloves where he actually lost in the final uh, sugar ray leonard was actually around at the time and and he actually won his it was a 156 pound um tournament uh, where he competed at so and he lost to dal grant um and then obviously uh, i think it was a month later on may 7 1973 when Hagler then competed in in the, in the National Amateur Athletic Union, so the AAU Championship, um, in Boston. Um, and, and he actually got a, a, a re- rewarded the outstanding boxer of the tournament after going on to win it. Uh, Leonard was in that, Sugar Ray Leonard, so was Aaron Pryor, so was the Spinks brother, so was Ray Sears. And he, um, yeah, he, he won it. And, and from that point, it looked like he was going to potentially move on to go to the Olympics in Montreal. But he did turn around and he sort of said, you know, he wants to go pro. Um, so he decided to go the hard way um, and he did say that, you know, you can't take a trophy and you can't turn it into a bag of groceries and with him having a young family at the time he obviously thought at 20 years of age that in actual fact he's going he's gonna to turn pro um, and that's what he did which was, was unusual because obviously you know, we all know what happened with Sugar Ray Leonard don't talk about too much about Sugar Ray but if he had have gone on to the Olympics, we could have achieved a similar thing and won a gold medal and then become this big star. But unfortunately, Hagler decided to go the harder route. He certainly did. He really did go the harder route. And that's something that people do compare him a lot to guys like Sugar Ray Leonard is, is how hard of a route he actually took. He completed his amateur career with 55 wins and one loss on his record. That one loss obviously being to, to Dale Grant by decision uh, in the 1973 Golden Gloves tournament, which he was talking about a little bit earlier on. So he starts his career then in May, 18th of May, 1973, 
at the Brockton High School Gymnasium in Brockton. Yeah, Brockton, Massachusetts. He got, uh, apparently, it's rumoured he get. He, he says, the funny thing is, in, in the Four Kings book, yeah, they, they say he gets $40 for this fight. Um, but then you also hear what other documentaries and other people saying that he got $50. Not that it makes a massive difference, but that was the amount he got for that fight in 1973, uh, which in comparison, again, this is going to happen obviously throughout Sugar Island. It's 40000 for his debut fight, obviously a few years later. But there's always the comparison there with him in the amateurs. There's always that rivalry leading all the way up to the very end of Hagler's career. But yeah, $40 for his first ever fight against uh, Terry Ryan. And yeah, so, so he moved on from there. And then, and funny enough, as you, as you mentioned, Donnell Winkle was the gentleman that um, he had the altercation with at a party, uh, got bashed out in front of his pals, got his living leather jacket nicked, and he got the chance to, to, to get one over on Winkle, which he did, who was actually undefeated. He was 8-0 at the time. And, and he won on points, although he was, apparently he was, uh, I, I haven't seen the fight, I don't think you can actually get any footage of it, but reading about it, he was, I think, Marvin Hagler, which is that you don't necessarily see, but this is what we're hearing. But Hagler did go on to, to quite convincingly win that fight. It was a bit crazy, really, that, you know, this event had happened and then he ends up fighting the guy who had embarrassed him in front <laughs> of his friends and then he ends up going in there uh, and having a little bit of a war against him, him being 8-0 and at the time and then taking his undefeating record. And that's definitely one way to sort of shove that in a body's face by, by getting that victory over him. But his early career, starting off in 1973-74, to 74, as you said earlier, that was was the hard route. You know, it was the hard route. He was fighting practically every month or every other month throughout 1973 and 1974, sometimes two times in a month. It's like there was two occasions in 1974. Uh, in, in fact, sorry, there were three occasions in 1974 where he ended up fighting twice in the same month, which was the statement of intent, really. Because at that stage of your career, you know, even in this day and age, it's just as difficult to start out because you've got to try and sell tickets. Now, remember, we're going back to the, the early 70s here where they didn't have all the technology. They didn't have all the social media stuff. So in terms of promoting yourself, it was an absolute arsake to do it was it was very difficult to do you probably putting posters in shot windows word of mouth it must have been a such a hard graph for him and that first fight where he only took home 40 dollars i mean people start their careers off and don't even end up making money in the first couple of fights because they end up having to cover the cost of an opponent and then end up having to pay something to the promoter etc and training costs and then sometimes don't even end up earning nothing so you know it's 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 not too dissimilar you know for years ago to what it is now yeah absolutely yeah i mean i mean you say how difficult it was to promote marvin um you know it, it was tricky for him man me he, he's obviously he was a bit he was tough yeah he didn't really have the image you know he, he decided to go with the, the skinhead and the, and the goatee look which um you know to be honest he looked he looked quite badass i mean come on anyone else i mean first time i ever set eyes on marvin and i thought wow this dude looks nuts and uh he had the right image, um, and he quite liked it. He quite liked it the way that um, other opponents used to try and seize him up, like size him up. Sorry, and, uh, and he used to be able to intimidate him with that look. I mean, there, there was one one uh, thing that that he came out and said was that uh, it, during these sort of early days of his pro career, that he said as he was making his way to the ring. Um, there was sort of a couple of fellas in the crowd uh, and they were putting a bet on who they think is going to win and, and one of the guys turned around and said I'm going to take the black Kojak so <laughs> he quite liked that he liked the idea of it so you know to his credit he didn't really care too much about what people thought of him what they you know whether he looked what ha- with the part or not and I mean even even with the, the Petronelli's uh, the 
in in terms of their their gym. I mean, they actually were opposite. I think it was it was like a Boston newspaper shop, um, and and they would have press conference across the road from the shop in in a cafe to try and promote Hagler's next fights and they wouldn't even send someone over the road I mean you talk about how hard it is you know trying to promote a fire uh, I mean in this day and age it's, it's, it's not too easy even, even though we've got social media I mean we've got we've got outlets today but it was even harder back then and, and the fact that a local newspaper that just across the road couldn't even bother to go over and find out when this local guy is meant to be fighting. But obviously, for Hagler, the, the trouble was is that because he come from, from Newark, they didn't consider him as a, you know, as, as, a, as a New Englander. Um, but the way they see it is that he was just a newcomer and he was still a Newark-born fighter. So that was half the reason why he just he struggled to get the, the, the attention that, that, that basically he deserved. It's true as well. You know, you're fighting in an era where... There's a lot of racism going around, you know, you just on the back of what was a horrible decade for anybody who was of, of, of the colour of the skin of black or brown, you know, it was very, very difficult to be around. You think of all the influential figures that were around in the 1960s, you know, quite a few significant figures tried to speak up against, you know, the people that were trying to repress them. And as a result, you know, quite a few of them got, got killed in some sort of manner. So, you know, it was a very difficult period if you were a black man in the early 1970s trying to make a name for yourself and trying to put yourself out there to push yourself forward in your career so he did a good job of obviously getting people on his side because when he was in the ring he's knocking people out so he's knocking them all out you know he had that points win uh, over <laughs> Darnell Wigfall he had that win over Darnell Wigfall and then after that he just went on this run of stoppages of the opponents throughout 1974 all the way up until they got in the ring with his significant what what I would consider a significant point of his career when he fought Sugar Ray Searles. Absolutely, uh, Sugar Ray obviously had won the 19 uh, he'd won the gold in the 1972 Olympics. The fight was it was a big marquee fight and it was a matchup with basically two of top two of the top amateur middleweights really and and it was it was a big fight and and obviously it was it, it for Hagler, it was probably a, a major marquee fight because obviously he decided not to go to the Olympics. Obviously, Sears was uh, a little bit older, I believe. I mean, I'm not 100%. I'm sure he was. Um, and obviously undefeated, 21-0. And uh, he got a, a great points win over him. And, uh, and, and it just it, it, from that point, I mean, he was he was just one of those guys where I think many fighters, I say fighters, I, I say it's more of the managers that were looking after their fighters, it was like almost worthless stepping the ring against Hagler. As you say, at this point, he's knocking people out for fun. You know, he obviously has a couple of points wins, one over Sears and one over against Wingfall. But, you know, you're not going to get paid a lot. You're probably going to get beat. And, you know, you don't need to go that down that route because, in actual fact, Hagler wasn't well known. So, you know, credit to, for, for Sears even to, to, get in, to get in the ring, sorry. And, um, and well, obviously, Hagler come away with a points win, which is a big win, his first 10-rounder. And it, it was a good... You know, it was looking like he's, he's, he's going to make big waves. But it, again, it took, it took a long time for Hagler to finally get spotted. Yeah, and again, I, I do refer back to obviously what we were discussing earlier about the fact that at that period of time, uh, you know, unless you were a certain fighter coming off the, you know, the back of a, an Olympic medal, funnily enough, like it is in this day and age, if you're coming off the back of an Olympic medal, you're automatically thrust into a platform. However, 
boxing wasn't as big as what it's been made today with obviously the the, the changes that have happened so again even a victory uh, over a former Olympian still wasn't enough to, to push him on to where he needed to be at this point so he continued on he fought obviously seals again uh, in 1974 but this time they fought to withdraw in the second fight yeah yeah there, there was this one was a funny one because it sounded like there was a bit of suspicion in this because uh i mean one of the judges actually scored the fight 98 96 in Hagler's favor it was the other two that actually scored it 99 with eight of those 10 rounds scored even so i, I you know people have mentioned it didn't it didn't sound right it's not a bit fishy I've never known two judges to be able to come out of an, an even scorecard and plus score two eight-rounders eight even. I don't know. It, it didn't seem quite right to me looking at it. And obviously, with it being outside of, of uh, Brockton, Massachusetts, it, you know, it was his first fight in Seattle, Washington. I do wonder that I think uh, some of the judges may have been... Uh, I can't have there because uh, by the sounds of it, Hagler should come away with a victory in that one. Yeah, I would probably agree with you. Uh, I think <laughs> I think corruption was a little bit more rife back in boxing. I mean, people say boxing's corrupt today, but I mean, it's probably a lot easier to hide it than what it was back then. Uh, but obviously, there was a lot of ties to to the mob in the sixties. Obviously, we, we know the story of Sonny Liston, and we know his ties to the mob. And you know, there's always that question of did he take a dive in the second Ali fight, and then we get something like this where you get judges scoring even rounds in a, in a fight where seemingly looked like you know Hagler was the victor but yet two of the judges decided it was it was even for for the majority of the fight which was was quite a strange one and I think like you say reading through the archives of it there's a lot of people that I think around at the time that felt exactly the same about that and nothing's really changed uh, in today's game to be honest with you you still get people doing similar things with controversial scorecards or really poor judging that's something that's always been inconsistent in the sport so that was significant them two victories I would say were quite significant in his career as he was moving on I mean you look forward and you look again into the 1975, uh, and then he goes and beats his old foe, Darnell Wigfall, yet again, this time stopping him. After he'd been on a little bit of a, an unbeaten run for a little while as well, after he'd lost the first time to, to Marvin Hagler, uh, he went back and went on like a, a little bit of a run. He got beat off Willie Taylor in the immediate aftermath of losing to Marvin Hagler, but then went on a run uh, of six wins before bumping into Hagler yet again, but this time Hagler you know, he wasn't leaving anything to chance and he stopped him in this second fight between one another. And this was obviously significant because that was like closing a chapter of a book on something that had happened years before. So I would say from a personal perspective, that must have been nice and bittersweet for him to get that. Oh, absolutely. Could you, I mean, to, to have got bashed up sort of in front of your mates, <laughs> get, your, get your coat nicked and then, you know, you, you beat him on points and then, you know, quite convincingly the first time and then to have an opportunity to fight him again and, and as you say, he was a little bit of a run uh, wing for when uh, to put him away in round six must have been bittersweet. Hagler, I'm sure he... Uh, <laughs> He, he probably, you know, Nan Hagley, he, he probably just accepted it as, you know, yeah, just another guy. But deep down, he's probably thinking, oh, I'm bloody glad I knocked him out, um, put those uh, demons in the back of his head and, and moved on with his career. Because, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a great victory for him, obviously. Getting rid of his old foe, Dornell Wingfall. Well, you look back on his career and you look through his record, and one of the most difficult things we both agree on with Marvin Hagler's career was that he had difficulty in getting quality opponents because nobody wanted to fight him. No promoter wanted to put someone in the ring with him because they knew what he was capable of. He was capable of going in there and, and knocking your fighter out. So people were reluctant 
shirts and to put him in the ring with people. So he ended up going in and fighting guys that were like ridiculous records. So you'd get some guys that were like seven and thirty-five, and then you'd get guys that were six and two, and then you get guys that were completely undefeated. So when he fought Johnny Baldwin. In 1975, Johnny Baldwin was 30, you know, at the time. 30, the master record of 30 wins with no losses. And then went in with Marvin Hagler, and Marvin Hagler fought him to a unanimous decision victory. And that, for me, was quite significant because when you look at the lead-up to that particular fight, really, and you look at the victories on his record, the, the significant ones were obviously the Sugar Ray Seals ones, because he obviously come from the Olympics, he'd got the the, the twenty two and zero undefeated record before he bumped into Hagler, and then going forward from there, you know you're getting a mixed bag of tricks really with the guys that you're getting in the ring with. So it must have been difficult. It must have been. It makes me wonder how he had the motivation to continue going on, knowing he was in this sort of uphill struggle to to, to get the right opponents to push himself on to eventually get that world title shot. So he gets that win over Johnny Baldwin, 1975, and again continues on throughout his career through 76 and 77, getting victories over Willie Monroe twice, once in 76 and 77, and most notably in 77. And this will probably be something that a lot of listeners maybe did or didn't know, was that he actually beat Roy Jones Sr. in October 1977. Yeah, yeah, Roy Jones' dad, yeah, which is, it was, it was an interesting actually, really, because, uh, yeah, um, that was a, that was a, I mean, I didn't even, I knew obviously Roy Jones Jr., we all, we all know him, uh, a great fighter, but I didn't really, I knew his dad obviously was, was around, he was a boxer, but I didn't realise that he had actually, uh, he, he fought Marvin, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good fight for him, um, uh, and obviously on the undercard as well, was actually, uh, he was actually demoted on the undercard. This, I think, this fight. Uh, he was put on the first ever undercard on the Sugar Ray Leonard bill against uh, Vinny De Barros as well. Uh, so, uh, and, and funny enough, uh, Hagler only earned sort of fifteen hundred quid, whereas uh, Leonard obviously earned a lot more. I think it was like fifty grand. But, I mean, he had obviously he had, he had the two defeats just before that. So he lost to, to Bobby Watts, didn't he, um, in a majority decision, which. Apparently was a bit of a, a bit of a sus one. I mean, that fight is actually on YouTube. You can watch that, and and I actually think that um, he wins the fight. I think he was robbed there, um, and he's he's sort of he was promoter at the time was a guy called uh, Silverman, um, and they got rid of him. Um, literally, as I think it's the first time we ever fought in uh, Philly as well. That's where they moved him on, and he got done. He actually goes and wins after that, and then loses again to Willie Monroe. So you know, it, uh, this one was probably people actually say that the Willie Monroe or the Worm Monroe actually that fight is the only fight that Hagler ever lost if obviously we believe he beat uh, Leonard but that's another story but um, yeah so it's interesting how uh, how how, how uh, Hagler was struggling um, you know he had this little period where he couldn't get in he had obviously had the two defeats but you know he came back and as you say he beat Monroe in a, in a, the, the second match in the rematch and then went on to beat uh, to uh, beat Roy Jones or Joe Senior which is obviously Roy Jones Jr.'s father so the early losses that he took in his career, again, you know, you look at the style of, of Hagler's and this early style of it, and, and the ferociousness was something to, to, to really behold and a joy to watch. However, it was something that 
could easily be telegraphed and predicted if you had a guy who was a slickster who could go in there and cause a little bit of an upset and ruffle some feathers. And that's exactly what happened when he fought Bobby Watts and Willie Monroe. He's obviously got beat off them two guys. Them two guys were frustrating for him. They, they, they were two fights in particular where he were getting really, really frustrated in him. And it would happen again throughout his career as we progress on through there. So he picks up them two defeats over the course of 1976. And again, at this point, he's still struggling to, to sort of become this breakout star at this period of time. Beats Roy Jones Sr., and then goes on to stop William Monroe in 1977 before moving on again uh, with more victories uh, via TKOs and then eventually bumps into one of his good old friends, Mr Sugar Ray Seals, yet again up in 1979. Again, this time stopping him where Sugar Ray Seals at this point is is coming towards the latter end of his career. So it was just another... Another notch on the bedpost, we should say, for this particular one, for Marvin Hagley. He was a, a beating a guy he'd already been in the ring with twice. He'd won one, got a draw, and now the third one he got uh, a significant victory with a stoppage over him. And Seals is down. A right hook from Hagler was the one that guard him, and then a following left knocked him down. But it was that right hook that really hurt him, Gil. Yeah, that's what it's known as getting caught cold. He really got nailed early. Hagler on the attack right above our microphones and Seals now will just try to get himself back together from that tough right hook from Marvin Hagler. Hagler scoring with a right and a left and Seals is down again. And that might be all for Sugar Ray Seals. He is wobbly and glassy-eyed. Now he's saying to the referee that he's all right. Evidently, he's asked to continue. Hagler on oh, knocks him down with a left hook. It's and that'll be it. What a spectacular win for Marvin Hagler. Marvin Hagler, the three knockdown rule uh, should be in effect here. I think that's, that's three, isn't it, Gil? It's <laughs> all over. It is all over. A stunning first round knockout for Marvin Hagler. Yeah, yeah, he was brilliant. I mean, that night, I mean, uh, Sugar Ray Seals, uh, that is, this, is, this is definitely on YouTube. I remember I did watch this recently, and uh, it was a first round knockout. He literally wiped the floor with, with Sears. As you say, he was clearly on the decline, but Hagler, uh, he sort of knocked him down with a, with a big shot. It was a sort of right hook, and then uh, he sort of he followed it up with a, with a left, and Sears was, he just didn't recover from it. He got knocked down the first time, and then knocked down again, and then the third time, he's literally staggering around. It's quite funny, because you see him sort of saying, referee, no, I'm all right, and he wasn't all right. He was in absolute state, and, you know, back in this, this day as well, even in 79, when these guys went down, and, you know, today, when you know a guy's down, down and and the fact that you just watch the referee today watch back at it and they're still trying to count the flea you just think are you crazy this guy's definitely not getting up but uh yeah it was a, a destructive uh performance from Hagler. and uh, again yeah i mean he, he fought bob patterson and, and jamie thomas and then you're sort of thinking god when is he ever going to get an opportunity he's now 45 two and one you know he's had a challenge all his life and and, and when is his big break going to come and then sort of looking through the archives again, reading the books and, and sort of picking bits and bobs out. And this is this is the point when he finally gets that big fight. And it's actually thanks to uh, New York Times' Michael Cat, uh, who was a keen admirer of Hagler. He had a politician, um, George Wainwright, and his son was actually Hagler's lawyer at the time, and his son was called Steve Wainwright. Now, this is where you talk about knowing someone and then knowing someone and knowing someone that can actually get you the opportunity. And this is a position Hagler was in. It was just 
He knew someone who knew someone that eventually got to somebody called Ted Kennedy, who was actually the U.S. Senator of Massachusetts, and he's actually sent letters to um, to Bob Arum because Bob Arum was was the main man in the middleweight, and he he basically controlled the middleweight division, um, and he was receiving his letters. And when he started getting letters from sort of Ted Kennedy, he, he sort of thought, well, actually, I better sort something out here. Um, and it was from that point that, you know, the, the Petrielli's and Hagler went and see Bob Arum and, and he gave him the opportunity. And he said, look, do you know what? We'll give you this chance. You can fight Cabrera, who, who was uh, an Argentinian in, Mon- in Monte Carlo. If you win that fight, you will get the winner of the fight of Antifero, I always pronounce this guy's wrong, but Antifero and Hugo Carrero, uh, who were on the same card. And then from that point, this win is TKO in France, first ever time outside of America. He pleased the French crowd. Um, they were sort of really, um, they couldn't believe how, this, how good this guy was and why no one ever knew about him. And then he finally got the opportunity to finally fight for the WBA, WBC, the ring, and the lineal middleweight titles for the first ever time against Vito and Tefero. So that was a very significant moment in his career, getting that first world title shot in November of 1979 against Antifermo at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas. It was a very, very tough affair. Now... This is another controversial scorecard and outcome because this was actually deemed a split decision draw. So as a result of that draw, Antifermo keeps his titles, of course. So Hagler didn't win the titles. But the controversial part of it is everybody who was watching that fight felt Hagler had won the fight. And Hagler himself had even claimed that the referee had told him in the ring he'd won the fight. The referee, of course, denied that claim later on. But why would Hagler say that? Why would you come out with something like that? I think the difficulty with this particular fight for Marvin Hagler is, again, as I was referring to earlier on, the style of Hagler at times can be quite frustrating for himself. He can smother a lot of his own work. And this is what was happening towards the end of the fight with Antifermo. He started to smother a little bit uh, of his own work. Now, he had the boxing skills and the killer instincts to knock him out, but the thing was, it was just a case of playing it too safe on this night, and as a result of that, what happened was Antifermo obviously was able to capitalise on some of the rounds uh, and landed some of the more eye-catching shots, which is what I believe, looking back on this fight and looking at the decision and why it was made, was probably why he ended up keeping his titles and it was deemed a draw because they always have this cliche saying about taking the the title away from the champion ripping the the title away from the champion i wonder if they're going to call this thing a draw should that be the case and affirmo retains his title ladies and gentlemen here is the decision of the judges judge dalby shirley scores 144 142 and to affirmo Scores 145, 141, Marvin Hegler. One and one. Let's see how this thing goes. Judge Hal Miller scores 143, Hegler, 143, and to a The decision is a draw. It's a draw. And to a is still. We don't retain the title. Good Lord, they called it a draw. 
you've got to clearly beat the champion in some sort of emphatic fashion you know if it is on points to be able to take his title away and there's always the champion's advantage as well and all this came into play on this particular night because Hagler weren't able to to hit the nail on the head he weren't able to knock Antifermo out he weren't able to land anything significant on him that was going to really hurt him to clearly win some of them rounds where there was no option but to give him the decision but instead he didn't didn't do that and what ended up happening was as we know it ended up being a draw and Tefermo keeps his titles Hagler gets frustrated big opportunity and he only gets a draw in it yeah yeah it was a, as you say you're absolutely right he was you know I think he dominated the early and the middle exchange it was towards the end of the fight where he took his foot off the gas and and, and Tefermo he, he, he took he, he took initiative and he put it on Hagler uh, for the last couple of rounds, and, and you know I think most people felt that it was it was it was a poor decision. <laughs> they felt that actually uh, Hagler deserved to win the fight, but you know Vito showed he had a, he, he had a tough, he had a solid chin. He took some big shots in the early exchanges, and and he come through it. I mean Hagler actually called him uh, Vito the Mosquito as well. <laughs> he was actually handed out uh, souvenir fly swatters in the pre-fight press as well. So uh, he, he he was obviously. Quite Quite confident and uh, making fun of Vito, but you know he was a tough, tough geezer, and uh, and he proved that on the night. And I think uh, City, I've not watched it recently. I think I've, I've heard other people mention it in whatever else in documentaries. I've seen bits and bobs of it and highlights of it, but I've never actually seen the fight. and watched it all, but by the sounds of it, it was a pretty one-sided in terms of the first sort of ten rounds. It was more or less all Hagler. Um, I think even Bob Aaron turned around and said he couldn't give uh, Vito four rounds. Um, so, you know, it, it was one of them things. He obviously didn't get the result. But, but the one thing was, was interesting was that Sugar Ray Leonard was actually on the card against Benitez. And that was the main, you know, his title shot. He was he ended up becoming the headline. Hagler ended up playing second field to Leonard again. And Leonard actually said that after watching the Hagler fight and seeing how Hagler was, as you say, he was just he, just, he had the killer instincts to knock him out, but he just didn't. It sort of cost him the fight. And Hagler made sure he won that last round. He was actually watching Hagler. who decided, actually, you know what? I'm going to make sure I win this 12th round and make 100% sure I can't win with a victory. And he ended up winning his title. So, I mean, it's interesting. This is Hagler's 50th fight as well. And this is the first time he had actually been televised to the wider audience. First time in Caesars Palace. You know, he finally got his opportunity with all these sort of millions watching on ABC, I think it was. And, and he was unfortunate. Most people felt that he won the fight. But um, one good thing and the significant thing for Hagler was that at least he got recognition and people now knew who he was. He certainly did. And the next big outing for him was, of course, against Alan Minter, which we'll talk about in a couple of moments. But before we got to the Alan Minter fight, in 1980, he obviously got three victories, avenging an earlier defeat to Bobby Watts in April of 1980, before then going on to beat Marcus Geraldo at Caesars Palace, winning via unanimous decision, which put him in prime position to challenge again for the WBC, WBA, the ring, the lineal middleweight titles of the world, coming to Wembley fight Alan Minter on his home turf. Now this, <laughs> I'm laughing because I know what we're going to be talking about now and it's probably not something you should laugh at, but I think when I watch the video of the Alan Minter Marvin Hagler fight, I just find it quite crazy to look at and, and I think that was more of a nervous laugh because when you think back to that, it was uh, pretty pretty horrifying what happened after the result of 
Hagler versus Minter. Now, before that fight took place, of course, Anta Firma was a champion who lost his title to our British boxer, Alan Minter. And he gave Hagler the second title shot of his career. So Hagler went over to Wembley to face Alan Minter. Now, Alan Minter, at the time, really confident, really cocky, very tense atmosphere. It didn't help. When Alan Minter was quoted as saying that no black man is going to take my title. So we go back to the old racism yet again. And this was something that was put on the other foot when Bernard Hopkins said no white man was going to beat me to Joe Calzaghe years and years later on down the line. But this this comment, I think, although it was totally wrong what he said and what it was, it was clearly what it was intended to be, but back in that period of time people, the Caucasian race, the white race, our white race, found that more socially acceptable to go around and say stuff like that, because they felt that was the right thing to do at the time, and the right thing to say, you know, they would call anybody what they wanted to call them, and they could get away with it, obviously we live in a completely different period of time now, because this wouldn't happen, it'd be a hate crime, it'd be a race crime, but back then you you just getting away with it. So Alan Minter really didn't do himself any favours straight away by t- saying that no black man's going to take his title. He'd later insist that he actually meant that black man, as in Marvin Hagler, was going to take his title. So we get to the fight and obviously Hagler takes his frustrations out on Alan Minter and he's just throwing these wild shots straight at him. You know, he's straight out of the bats. Uh, he's going out there and Alan Minter was prone to getting caught and very early on in the fight, he got cut, and obviously, as a result, this ended up getting the fight stopped. So, Alan Minter's face was all shredded up. The doctor examined it. The doctor said, actually, no. Minter's manager, Doug Bidwell, almost immediately conceded defeat. And as soon as the referee waved it off, a riot broke out among the spectators. It is a really very bad cut over Minter's left eye, and it stopped. It stopped in the third round, and Hagler's on his knees claiming his victory he said he was the rightful champion and he's won it in three rounds of people are throwing beer cans one's landed on me beer cans are being hurled in all over the ring there's a fight started over Hagler somebody's attacking him and there is chaos here absolute chaos I'm smothered in beer so are all my colleagues around me and people are trying to attack Hagler police are trying to move into the ring to protect Hagler and I've been struck on the head by a bottle. And it absolutely was mental. When you watch the video, it probably doesn't do it justice as to what it was like to be in that arena at the time. You had chairs flying around, bottles flying around. They're all throwing shit in the ring to get to Hagler. Hagler and his Hagler's team are literally playing cannon fodder to Hagler. They're literally jumping on Hagler, protecting him, you know, as a, like a human shield, a human cannon fodder. With all these bottles and everything's going flying into the ring, and they're trying to get him out. And he couldn't even celebrate the fact that he'd just become a, a you know a huge star in the middleweight division by picking up them titles, beating Alaminta in Wembley. Right. Let's just hold that thought for just a couple of minutes to give a shout out to the sponsors for BTR Boxing Podcast, Bear Attack Boxing, and as always, they're producing high quality boxing gloves, equipment, wraps, you name it, they've got it. I just want to tell you listeners to go over and check them out because they've got some really good quality products coming out. And as the months have rolled by, I've really been impressed by the level of quality products that they're actually bringing to the table now. So, when they first started out advertising for BTR Boxing Podcast and Bear Attack Boxing, it was just one set of gloves they had, and they were pretty standard gloves. 
something you'd find in the industry, just standard gloves that you'd use on a bag. But as the last few months have gone by, we've seen Pluto gloves, we've seen the Fight Pro 1 gloves come out, all different ranges and different styles, and of course, different colours as well. And we've not just seen that, we've actually seen the wraps, the inner gloves, we've seen the pads, and now we've got the t-shirts as well. So, it's all growing, along with BTR Boxing Podcast, and I'm really happy to be a part of that. So, as you listeners come to BTR Boxing Podcast to get your boxing fix, you're also lucky because you're also going to get a 10% discount if you're interested in going over there and checking their products out. If you go into the checkout and you type in BTR10 into the promo code section, you'll get 10% off your basket. And whatever you're buying, 10% is a really good little offer just for listening to this particular podcast. So please take advantage of it. If you're looking for some high quality, top goods, go over to Bear Attack Boxing. Their website is www.bearattackboxing.co.uk. They're on social media, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Find them, Bear Attack Boxing. And now I'm going to let you get back to listening to career profiles. Yeah, it was it was it was terrible, wasn't it? Really, I mean, you look at it, it was a it was dark days in English boxing. If you, you know, you think about that element of fight because it was dreadful. I mean, really, I mean, they really jumped on the bandwagon with with, with the racism and the football charting. And that, you know, you think about the eighties and you read it. I mean, that's, I, I was. I was, we was born in the 80s, you know what I mean? We was youngsters, but I mean, I was born in 82, so this is just before, I was a couple of years before I was born, but, um, so this is 1980, so I was born in 82, but, um, yeah, man, I mean, you hear, oh, through the years I've heard stories and the, the football violence and we were sort of kicked out of European football and, and that was basically brought that night, you know, it was it was not nice and not pretty to see, and it was as I say, it was dark days in sport really for Britain because it was just it was just like it was such it was just an awful place really in terms of the dark ages there. And they see, you know, they, they, they jumped on the racism, and obviously you had the black guy coming over from America, and and the minute had just beaten the fella that he, who had just drawn with him, so obviously you know they jumped on it and thought, yeah, this is going to be a, an easier night. And even Alan said, even that comment you you said about that black man, he said he was actually told to say it and he just said it because he was told to say it and you know it, I suppose back then he, he you know he weren't massive even admitted himself I wasn't clever I wasn't, for, I wasn't educated too well so if someone tells him to do that I'll do it is it, what he said so, so to Alan Minter's credit it, he was just being told to, to coerce it and bring this racial divide I think and um, and it didn't help things because obviously it read out the crowd and I think that was the aim sort of to wear out the crowd and just sort of piss Hagler off but as we've already mentioned, you know, Hagler was born through the Newark riot. We were born, he, he sort of, he spent a week during those Newark riots and he lived there for, all the way up until he was in his teens. So, in actual fact, I'm sure, Stephen Foot Wembley Stadium here in a couple of racial slurs was nothing for Hagler. I think for him, he was like, you know, you want to try living in the projects in Newark and then you can tell me whether I can get through this or not. But it was brilliant. And, and Minter, I even said, I kept edging him on, keep telling him, come, come, come and hit me, come and hit me. This is the worst mistake he ever made because he said it's the hardest he's ever been hit in his career and Hagler did do a number on him. He gave him the right battery and obviously his face is all cut up. And um, I mean, you talk about the video on YouTube and you hear a Carpenter and it is quite funny. It's terrible to say, but he's sort of going, I'll get him being thrown on me. <laughs> and it, it's, it's awful to look at it, but... You're sort of feeling for him. You get this is disgraceful, and and but when you watch back, you just think, oh, poor Harry, like sitting in the middle of this, and he's like ringside. You've got people fighting round him, beer getting chucked over, and God knows, is it even beer? Really pissed? Who knows? But um, yeah, bless Harry, and and, and yeah, it wasn't. A, it was a bit of a disaster, really, for, for for British boxing. But 
But Hagler, as you say, I mean, this is the point that made him world heavyweight champion and this is the start of Hagler becoming one of the best ever middleweights and if not, considered still one of the best ever middleweights ever. Definitely, this was the start of an amazing run for marvellous Marvin Hagler. This was really where he became marvel- the marvellous one. Getting these titles off Alan Minter at Wembley, overcoming that. Notable wins on his record after that point, leading into the big fights of his career, was the knockout of Vito Antifermo in 1981. He stopped him within four rounds at the Boston Garden in Boston. And it's at this point where he's starting to endear himself to the Boston fans. This is where people are starting to really get on board with him now. He is the champion. He is the guy that looks ferocious. People are seeing him for what he really is as a fighter, and they're enjoying it. So he's going in there, and he's he's, he's you know he's doing a number on people. Uh, one interesting particular fight, which I've, I've not had the opportunity to look back if there is any footage on, but one particular name on his record stood out to me when I was looking through it earlier, was that he fought a guy named Caveman Lee and beat him. And I was thinking, did really people really call themselves that? You know, was this really something that was a thing back back in the 80s? But, you know, apparently so, Caveman Lee. You know, he had uh, 26 fights in his career. And Marvellous Marvin Hagler was probably the most significant fight of his career. And he lost that fight to Hagler. Going back on to, to obviously, Hagler's career at this point. You know, he's beating guys like Tony Sibson. And then he bumps in to one of our favourites. One of the guys out of the Fab Four pole. Mr. Roberto Duran, who had moved up from light middleweight at this point and jumped up to the middleweight division to take on Marvin Hagler. Ah, the legendary Roberto Duran. I mean, for me, he's just a class, class act really I think of Duran and you, you don't I mean I always sort of the footage isn't there necessarily for the lightweight division when he was considered to be the king of the lightweights uh, but you know we've seen and we've, we've discussed it so we've been through the Leonard fight and one in Montreal and obviously been the no Madison but it's, it's incredible that Roberto Duran actually fought marvellous Marvin Hagler at middleweight at his weight this is the weight where Hagler ruled and Duran for me, she had no right stepping in the ring against Marvin Marvin Hagler and going 15 rounds with him. I mean, he won the fight, and you know, that's decision Hagler, granted. But, you know, what Duran showed was pure class. Um, and, and he was really the first guy that really pushed Hagler uh, after, since winning the world title. It was a very tight fight right up until the 13th round. Uh, and I think, I believe even Duran was a head bowl at, at that point as well, in that 13th round, um, on two of the scorecards. Um, and it was even... Uh, on, on the third. So in actual fact, the Ram was winning that fight, but maybe with, with, with the Vito fight, in terms of, you know, he, he, he allowed Vito to come back, even the Monroe fight, when he, he he allowed these guys to sort of come back at the end, I think Hag was like, in actual fact, I'd better get on, you know, get on the gas here and, and have a go. And Hagler had a swollen left eye, he was cut, but he managed to win those last couple of rounds, which eventually got him over the line to win that fight by UD. But, you know, you look at the records and you see it's a UD and you think, yeah, Quite a comfortable night for Hagler. It wasn't at all. Duran pushed him all the way. And I think the general consensus was that Hagler actually gave Duran too much respect. Um, Duran was, a, you know, he was he was a, a top, top fighter and he knew it. Whether it was a middleweight or not, it made no difference. And Hagler showed Duran respect probably a bit too much. Um, and Duran was quite open with, with what he, you know, he turned around and said, you know, he was going for, I think, four for his third title. Um, and, um, but, you know, obviously he come up short, but he, he was quite open and said Hagler deserved to win the fight. But it was a, it's a really good fight, actually. And I was, you know, again, I, we talk about the Four Kings book. I've got the, the DVD of the Fab Four. And that was one fight in particular. That was really, I was just surprised that Duran was able to be um, as competitive as he was. But, you know, again, that just shows you how much of a class act he was. 
you know, credit to, to Hagler, though. It was a big win for him and another big name. It certainly was a big name on his record. This is exactly what he needed at this point in his career. Obviously, Duran, you know, he'd come up through the weights. You know, he was probably the best he ever was down in the lightweight division. But the fact that he was able to, to come up to the middleweight division and take him all the way and be at one point, be ahead on the cards, very close to the end of the fight. Hagler at this point as well is something that, we need to touch on is that he's actually his left eye was quite badly swollen going in to the final championship rounds and somehow managed to come on strong in the last couple of rounds to win that fight Duran was the first challenger to actually last the distance with Hagler in a world championship bout so big props to Roberto Duran of course that just makes me feel even more love for the guy you know as as the legend that he is and and as he was as a fighter because the way he moved through them weights and you know he gave Hagler a really really difficult night but when Hagler moved on in his career and he got past the Duran fight his next fight was quite significant for me when he fought Juan Domingo Roldan Uh, he beat Juan Domingo Roldan I'll put that out there first but it was this particular fight which we've spoke about before this is the fight that really got the interest between Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler going because Sugar Ray Leonard was actually doing the commentary for this particular fight and he was saying to his co-commentator at the time that you know Marvin could actually be slowing down right here and it's you know many critics many journalists believe that was the fight the Roldan fight that was the one that got Sugar Ray Leonard thinking you know actually if I can come back I will and I'll, I'll take that fight and I can actually beat him again so for me this was very significant now it was also significant because Roldan was the only man ever to be credited with a knockdown of Marvin Hagler as well and there's no question about it that Juan Domingo Roldan is going to come after Marvin Hagler now to what degree of success remains to be seen he's strong we know that and there's a flash left hand it is a knockdown first time that Marvin Hagler has ever been knocked off his feet he's not happy about it Apparently, it didn't look as though it was a clean punch. It seemed more like a push and head, which just happened to be off balance. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, it's actually quite funny because I did actually see something recently just before Hagler come out and won this poll, but it does look like a slip. It's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, it's... It's not really a big knockdown, and actually, it just pissed Hagler off. I think for me, from that point, he was just relentless, and he—he he could say he was—he was so pissed off that this guy had become the first person to be credited for the knock. But you know, as you say, Sugar Ray Leonard—he was commentating. He clearly said that he felt that Marvin might finally be slowing down. And obviously, you know, he, he, at the time he was 58-2-2. Two and two. You know, he had just, it had taken him a long time to get the credit that he deserved. And uh, and, and many people believed that this is the fight, as you say, that, that Sugar Ray got the idea that he could actually beat an aging Hagler. And, and I think there probably were signs. I mean, as you say, he does go on, obviously, to beat Roland, uh, Roldan. But um, is it a knockdown? It's a tough, I, I, for me, I think it looks like a slip for me. And I... I think I still think Hagler to this day probably got one of the most granite heads and chins I've ever seen. Really, I mean, I don't think there's anyone that could really be credited with actually knocking him down. Um, I don't know. Would you? Do you think he slipped? I think he slipped short. I don't. I think it was a punch, but I think he was just off balance. I think he was off balance as well. I'll be totally honest with you. Watching back on that, I think it was just one of them situations where he caught him off balance, and he, you know, he managed to look like he was going down. And he, you know, he's credited with it. It's in the history books now. We can't change it, of course, but. It didn't. It didn't look like it to me. It didn't look like a clear knockdown to me. It looked like a little bit of a slip that he'd been caught off balance, and the referee had ruled it as a knockdown. And, and these mistakes can happen, of course. Uh, but that is my opinion on that particular one. And, and obviously, that victory, you know, 
continues his career on. And then he picks up a victory in Madison Square Garden against Mustafa Hamshaw, who he'd already beaten previously a couple of years earlier. So this led us nicely into one of the legendary nights that we've already covered, which is Hagler versus Hearns from 1985. And how significant this fight was for boxing was uh, unbelievable. This this was probably, for me, the defining fight of Marvin Hagler's career. Once we can get Marvin to watch the left jab, get his mind on the left hand, then it will be no problem with getting other shots off. Hearns is best... Uh, defense is his offense because that's the only way that he knows how to fight. Uh, in my way, I have to make my defense my best offense. So, uh, and though that I have both ways because once I get him in trouble, I can change it around. Thomas don't have that ability. I'm here to show the world that I have the ability to punch and power, to get in there and knock out middleweights, light heavyweights, whatever, welterweights all the way up to the lightweight division. I have that power. I have my mind focused on one thing, and that's to destroy him. That is to knock him out. If I have the opportunity, if it's there, I'm going to take it. I think that this fight here will put me in the position for to make greatness and uh, be, put me one step closer to greatness and which is to win the four titles. That's what I feel. War. That's what's on my mind. I don't see the fight going to a round. I've been feeding the faith, and I've been starving the doubt. So there's no doubt in my mind that I can't win this fight or that I won't knock Thomas Hearns out. What this what this fight did for boxing in general, how this has left a lasting legacy for fight fans of any generation, uh, as as you know, it's one of my favourite fights of all time. I'll be I'll be honest, you know, there's so many fights out there I could sit and list and could be all night talking about. Well, this particular one, the fact that it just was just war for the length of time that it went on for, which wasn't very long, of course, it was just amazing. It's amazing, and it still sort of gives you you know the spine tingling feeling, the the hair standing up on the back of your neck feeling. When you sit down to watch this fight, even if you've watched it 40 times already, just watching it back again, it, you know, it's just it's just absolutely crazy. But the fight with Tommy Hearns, it was been brewing for a while. And the clip you put out on social media to promote this particular episode for the career profiles was, was fantastic. The interviews that took place with Marvin Hagler and Tommy Hearns were, were just stuff to behold because obviously the, this fight was originally scheduled to take place earlier than what it did. And if you want more of a detailed breakdown of, of this particular fight, then of course go and listen to the Legendary Knights Hagler Hearn episode. Marvelous. How much did you take out of Duran before he fought Hearns? How do you feel about that? Exactly. I feel as though that I took a lot out of Roberto Duran. He was only a shell of the fighter that when I fought him. And not to take anything away from Tommy because that's the way to go in and get the job done. But I tell you, the biggest fight that I've been waiting for, and that's with Sugar Ray Leonard, now that he's, he's gone out of the game, now I only have one other thing to do, and that's to fight Thomas Hearns. And I'm planning on breaking every bone in his body. How significant of a fight was this for boxing and would you say this is the most significant fight of his career? Uh, I would I would definitely I would say that this is this is the point where Hagler became a household name if he was it sort of worldwide I suppose from from his Hearns fight. I think uh, he, he shot onto the scene obviously winning that title in the Americans and obviously as you mentioned as well the Boston crowd finally took him in and accepted him as one of their own. But this was the fight that, you know, when you think of Hagler, the first name that pops into your head after Hagler is Hearns because it was just brilliant. I mean, 
that first round as well was just epic. I know, I don't, we, obviously, you know, if anyone wants to go back and listen to the legendary nights with, with Hagelhans, I'll definitely, uh, you know, I'll tell you to do so because it's, it's another great episode. But, you know, the fact that in that first round, you know, I think there was, I, th- I believe it was 165 punches thrown from the pair of them, you know, in, in, in three minutes. And, and they weren't just jabs. You know, you were, you were talking full on. They were looking to, to, to knock each other they were sitting down on them shots and they were looking to, to clean each other out. And obviously Hagler had that really bad cut, didn't he? He had a dreadful cut. And it was actually when he went back into the corner as well that you know, they, 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 you could see that they were worried. They were thinking, God, is this going to stop on a cut? And you could see it was pissing out of his face. And, um, and, I, and I was on one of the documentaries that um, I think the doctor said to him, can you see? And then Hagler turned around and said, I'm missing him. Because <laughs> he knows, you know, of course I can fucking see. I haven't hit him, right? So, you know, and, and from that point, he, he, you know, it was just brutal, wasn't it? And then the, the inevitable finish was, was just stunning. And just seeing Hearns just sort of tumble around that ring and, and the build up to it, obviously, you know, that, that video finish, I think it gave, it gave myself goosebumps. I believe someone even put on there that it, it, it gives them goosebumps just watching it and him saying, I'm going to break every bone in your body. But the, the crazy thing was, is, this was, these four was you know just obviously just jumping away from Hagler, but just the four of them in particular were just they were they were just so iconic in the eighties, literally from eighteen nineteen eighty sorry all the way up to eighty nine and and this was always this was the big fight for me. I mean this was a huge fight and and it just lived up to the billing and uh, and and it was even uh, the commentator Al Michaels that famously said the line. It didn't go very far, but it was a beauty. And I, I said that in when we were doing Hagler Leonard recently. But it, it is a great quote, and it was an absolute beauty, a really great fight, and a defining night for Marvin Hagler. Turns is smiling, but he's taking shots. Another right hand. Turns turns his back, takes another right. Turns in deep trouble again. Turns is down. Turns is down in the third round. And on his back. And he's not going to beat the count. I don't believe. Tommy Hearns tries to get up. And he... They've got to stop this fight. Does he get up? He just doesn't know. He can't continue. It's Hagler full of blood. Blood, no doubt, impeding his vision. Stopping under the third round. After Hearns almost ended it on a first round knockout. It didn't go very far. But it was a beauty. And this is where he's coming towards the latter end of his career. We're going into the final two big fights of his career before he decided to make the decision to retire. So the next fight after the Hagler-Hearns fight was straight in, out of the frying pan, into the fire, as he say. He went in with Olympic silver medalist John Mugabe of Uganda, who was 25-0 at the time with 25 knockouts. So this guy had a 100% knockout ratio going into the ring with Marvin Hagler. He was also ranked the number one contender by all three major bodies as well. So the fight took place uh, on March the 10th, 1986. Now Hagler had actually hurt his back and couldn't fight on the first date, which was booked for late 1985. So it took place early 1986 instead. It was a real war of attrition, this particular fight. It's one that I've spoke about with you before, Johnson, where we've said to people they should go back and and look at this particular fight of Mugabe and Hagler because it's not just a a great fight to watch but it's also where you get to see the signs of ring wear and tear on Marvin Hagler at this point he manages to beat Mugabe and stop him in the 11th round of what was a brutal fight but most observers at the time most ringside journalists at the time 
felt like he was showing signs of wear and tear. And this, again, where we felt it was significant earlier, in 1984, again, the roll-down fight, this was where Sugar Ray Leonard had no doubts about wanting to fight Marvin Hagler because he knew this was the, the right time to, to, to pick him, basically. It was the right time to get him when he was starting to slow down, when he was starting to get hit more. It was a really good fight, the Mugabe fight, but it really took a lot out of Marvin Hagler. I felt like he left a piece of his soul in the ring that night when he fought Mugabe because it was such a... Like I say, a war of attrition is the best way I can put it. You know, if people want to go and watch this on YouTube, I strongly implore you to watch it because how they both absorbed the amount of punches that they did was it was unbelievable. It's an unbelievable fight to watch. And Bob Arum, I was actually expecting Hagler to retire after the Mugabe fight, strangely enough. He felt like it was going to be over and it was going to be Sugar Ray Leonard who eventually would take over the middleweight division. But, of course... We get we get into the last fight in a few moments, but going back to the Mugabe fight, then Johnston, your thoughts on that? Oh, I'd, I'd advise anyone to go back and watch it because it is a brutal fight, and, and Hagler clearly was starting to show that, that those signs of wear and tear, and um, he took far too many shots than he probably he should have. I mean, he, he, he one thing we probably didn't mention was that you know Hagler was a if people didn't know Hagler was a, a right hander, he was a natural right hander, but he fought comfortably at, at Southport. So you know this was something he, he was he, he could fight either side. Uh, he was just he was just more vicious and devastating as a Southport, uh, which was another reason why people avoided Hagler for so long. As we mentioned, going through his career, you know, I think even Joe Fraser turned around once and said to him when he was sort of training one in his Philly gym before the Monroe fight was that you know. You've got three things bad for you. You're black, you're southpaw, and you're good. And I think that was uh, that was Hagler's always his problem. Um, but, you know, in this fight in particular, the Mugabe fight, he started off the fight as an orthodox. He came in with, uh, in his right-handed stance, and it didn't go too well, which is obviously we'll go on with respect before and legendary nights. He's done it against Leonard. But, you know, it, 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 as soon as he switched to his left, his southpaw, he, although he took too many shots, he was it, it was just, he was brilliant. I mean, it was just, it was brilliant either side. I mean, Mugabe, as you say, 25 wins, 25 knockouts. It was no mug. Mickey Duff was in his corner. You know, he had, he had a good, good pedigree. He had, he had a good group behind him. And, you know, Mugabe obviously would go on to, to fight even, um, what's his face? He fought like McLennan. He went on and fought McLennan, got rid of him in a round a few years later on after this. But Mugabe at this point was a big, big fighter and a, and a top fighter. And, you know, 25 wins, 25 knockouts, you know, in the middleweight division at his time was, was no main feat and, and Hagler was just coming to the end of his career and as you say this was the time when he decided actually he's going to call it a day I, don't, I can't think who it was but someone turned around and sort of said that after that fight that was the first time they'd ever seen anyone pissing a cup and just seeing pure red blood because Hagler took so many shots to the body and the liver and you know he was pissing blood after this fight and it was a brutal fight and, and Mugabe you know, he put his name out there as well as one of the top middleweights at the time. But anyone that hasn't seen this, go back and watch his fight because it's just brilliant. It's not the best Hagler fight. You're not going to see the best of Hagler. But what you will see is just his will and desire to get through the fight. And eventually, obviously, as you say, you know, he put him away, which is which is unbelievable, really, considering how much of a tough fight it was and, and how hard it was for Hagler. So let's move on to the final fight of his career. Sugar Ray Leonard. Rarely does an event live up to its billing. This one did. And that more than got Leonard's attention. Ray Leonard is hurt in the corner. Off the ropes. Leonard fighting off the ropes. We're going to brawl this guy. Keep the pressure on him. Take his legs away right now. A good right. Very Ray good right. Team hurt. I want you to box. That is all. Leonard now tries to fight off the 
Now, again, we have covered this particular fight off quite recently in the Legendary United series. So if you really want a full breakdown of the build-up, the fight breakdown and the aftermath, please go and check that out. We're just going to give a quick synopsis of that particular fight. So, Sugar Ray Leonard fight. Again, very significant fight in his career. The Hearns fight for me tops the lot, but this definitely comes a very close second in terms of significant moments in his career, fighting Marvin Hagler. So, at this point, obviously, Marvin Hagler, as we've said, is, is he's coming towards the latter end of his career. He's, he's getting hit a little bit more than what he did. He's a little bit more flat-footed. He's not as slick as he once was. So, as we were saying earlier, Sugar Ray Leonard decided that he was going to come out of, of retirement. He'd had issues with his eyes, and obviously he got them rectified, retired, and then come back, and eventually manages to pick this particular fight and decided it was the right time to go in there, move up to the middleweight division and fight Marvin Hagler because he's seen an opportunity there. But it wasn't all going to go his way as we've spoke about earlier in this particular fight. It was a very, very, very good and close competitive affair between these two opponents and Sugar Ray Leonard came away with the victory uh, and therefore took the middleweight titles away from Marvin Hagler in a controversial decision. And, you know, our opinion on this one recently was that we both felt that Sugar Ray Leonard uh, I think might have just edged this particular fight I think you in fact I think you actually said you felt Marvin Hagler had actually uh, just about edged this fight and I felt like Sugar Ray Leonard had actually took this particular win uh, on, on this occasion but it was a great fight again it was just a great build and a great fight and very significant and it was crazy to think that such a high-profile fight like this was going to be the last one of Marvin Hagler's career. Yeah, it was, it was a shame that it, it ended this way for Marvin. Um, he was obviously a fight he'd been chasing for a long time, um, Sugar Ray, and you know, we, we, as, as as you mentioned, you know, if you want to know the ins and outs of this fight, we did do a legendary night on it, and we went into detail about it, um, a lot of detail actually. Um, but you know, Ray Leonard was—he was always the guy that was always compared from the very start, from from those amateur days. You know, they, they shared, you know, the, the national gloves with, with Leonard winning his, and then a month later, Hagler goes and wins one. So, yeah, and then and then obviously with Hagler deciding to to take the hard route and not hang around because he wanted the money at a young family, whereas Leonard, for instance, decided to wait and went to the Olympics and got his gold medal. You do wonder with Hagler River, if, for instance, if he had decided, actually, you know what, I'm going to stick around to the amateurs. I think they felt in, in Petronelli's gym, uh, I think they felt that he could have gone on to potentially be an Olympian and pick up a medal, um, which would have shot him into fame and he would have earned a lot more money. I mean, you think by the time Leonard came Sort of made his professional debut in I think it was like seventy four or something like that. You know he's a, he earned forty grand in his debut fight, and as we mentioned, Hagler only got forty dollars. So, and by that point, when he actually shared the card with Hagler, Hagler, I don't think he had even earned forty grand. So, in actual fact, was it a good decision? I mean, I suppose it was dribs and drabs of money that he needed. So, you know, it's difficult. But I mean, this is whole thing. I mean, Leonard just. He, he dragged Hagler along, didn't he? He had the incident in Baltimore where he was going to call out and look like he was going to be having the fight and he said, no, it's never going to happen. And then the event, he was just teasing him, wasn't he? He was being a, being a bit of an arse. I mean, he even turned around and said that himself, Leonard, that he was being a bit of a wanker, really, um, <laughs> just to keep himself relevant. Um, and, and he, you know, what he did, he played mind games and it did, it worked. And um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a controversial fight, isn't it? I mean, you, you went Leonard, I, I went Hagler. I could see how, how, how you could see Leonard. I'm sure you could see how our 
you could go with Hagler. So it's a, it's, it's a matter of styles. Um, and that's what makes this fight in particular just so iconic in terms of how big it was, the draw of it, how long we'd waited for it, or, you know, not necessarily me and you, Sean, because we were a bit, we were only young, but... In terms of when we look back on it, you could see the, how everybody really wanted this fight and it took longer than it should have done. Um, as you say, Hagley did retire and then came back. He actually got convinced by Goody Petronelli. He, he actually sat in there and said, look, take this fight, earn yourself a load of million, beat him, walk away from the game and that's it. Go, just go and live in Italy, which is where he wanted to live the rest of his life. And, and you know, in the end, it didn't work out for him. Um, we all have our views. We all believe, some believe Hagler, some believe Leonard. Um, I think it's pretty split. I don't think there is a definitive reason or answer behind it. Um, but brilliant fight. And it was just, at the end of the day, it was a good end to his career. So he certainly could have got a rematch, I suppose, um, and maybe just, just, just had the second one just to see who won that one. But, um, Hagler obviously feeling a wear and tear over a long career and decided enough's enough and, and he didn't bother. No, he didn't bother. He, I think he was more pissed off at the decision. He obviously really felt like he'd won that fight genuinely. And I think he still does believe that to this day, that he genuinely won that fight. And obviously he was that pissed off that along with all the wear and tear <laughs> and, and being at the latter end of his career... He made that decision to retire and stayed retired, which is, you know, again, you've got to give props to the guy for doing that because people can come back so many times or there's there's usually a lot of fighters out there that miss the love of the sport and need to be in it in some capacity. So it was nice to kind of see that he decided to stick to his guns and stay retired and, and go on to carry on his, his life and... You know, he's still going around doing doing tours at the moment, doing after, you know, speaking events at dinners. And he's, he's over here in the UK. He's going to be here at the end of September doing uh, an after dinner event of, in, in Scotland. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's just great that he still goes around and tells his stories in this way. But in terms of statistical figures, in terms of Hagler's career, he reigned as the undisputed middleweight champion from 1980 to 1987, making 12 defences of the title, and he actually currently holds the highest knockout percentage of all undisputed middleweight champions at 78%, whilst also holding the second longest unified championship reign in boxing history at 12 consecutive defences. So, at 6 years and 7 months, his reign as undisputed middleweight champion is the second longest of the last century behind only Tony Zale, who reigned during the Second World War. So it's crazy to think, like, yeah, he had a, he had four or five big significant fights in his career. You know, the marquee fights, you know, beating Alimenta, the Antifermo fight, and then you've got, obviously, the Hearns fight, and then you've got the Ray Leonard, and you've got the McGarvey fights. They were the big, big significant ones, you know, where he was really well-known as a fighter. But then when you look at them facts and figures about his career, about what he actually achieved, a lot of people do consider him to be the best middleweight in boxing history. He, he is, in most people's eyes the best middleweight that has ever graced the squared circle. Some people do think Carlos Monson is, is the greatest middleweight, but I'd say, you know, it's probably a 70-30 split against Hagler and Monson as to who people think is actually the greatest middleweight that boxing's ever had. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, it's a different... I mean, could you imagine them two fighting each other? I mean, it was just right on the back end of, of Monson. I think he, he finished sort of in the 70s, didn't he? Um, when, when Hagler was obviously just starting out. But it, it, it was, it's interesting because, again, you know, you're talking about now, we look back on it and we say how great these two were and they're probably the best middleweights to ever grace the squared circle. But yet, they both had those difficulties. Monson was another one. He struggled to get any significant fights. People just didn't want to want to know. Um, the ones he lost, he lost 
just early in his career, a bit like Hagler, a bit more earlier, obviously, but they, they didn't really get an opportunity until sort of after sort of near on 30 or fights. I mean, Hagler, you're talking about 50 fights. His 50th fight, he finally gets becomes a world a worldwide name, or at least in, in America. You know, he's an American television for Caesar's Palace for the first ever time in his 50th fight. I mean, it, it's crazy to think of. And now, you know, he had that reign inevitably after the veto fight and, and, and went on to, to be cement his status as one of the best middleweights ever ever lived. And I mean, it's interesting because if he had have gone to the Olympics, would he still be as, you know, would he still be sought after? Would people still reckon he's the best? Could he have, were, were those early fights in his pro career, did that sort of mould him into the fighter he became? Maybe, I don't know, it's difficult. Maybe if he'd have gone to the Olympics, he would have lost something. Maybe he would have lost that, that fighting spirit because he weren't getting the money. Because I think that was what it was for him. He wanted money. That was the main objective for Marvin Hagler, was he wanted to, wanted the money. Obviously, early doors when he was a kid, he wanted to be known as a world champion. But that's what we all hope for when we're kids. We want to be a world champion, we want to be a professional footballer, whatever. But when it comes to the crunch, it's all about money. And we need the money to be able to live and look after our family. So it's a really tricky one because for me, I think I think Marvin and Monzon are the two best middleweights. And, you know, it's, 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 we've talked about Robinson, Shigeru Robinson, but for me, I think he's probably more of a welterweight, although he did compete at middleweight. Um, same with Leonard. Leonard only fought what once or twice at middleweight and light heavyweight. Um, but you know, even just just the four kings, we, we put it out there. The Fab Four. We put Duran. We put Hagler. We put Leonard, and we put Hearn. And who comes out on top? Mr. Marvelous Marvin Hagler. So maybe people realise now that finally he's getting that recognition that actually he was the best of the four. Maybe I think most people like me. I think for me, I do I always put Leonard above him. If anything, if I'm going to put anyone above anybody else, it's always Durant. I always think Durant is the best because of the way he fought through the weight. Whereas Marvin stayed at that middle weight, but he's still accepted as the best. So, I don't know. It's interesting. They all had their moments. I think I think Hagler was the best middleweight. I think Hearns was the best at sort of light middleweight. I think the welterweight was Leonard's and I think the lightweight was Durant's. And I think but because Durant fought his way through them all, I think that's what makes Durant that little bit special. But who am I to say? I mean, this is just, it's, it's up for debate, isn't it? They're all, all four of them are great. Obviously, we're talking about Hagler here, but yeah, just a great career. It's just brilliant to look back on it and, and just find out a lot of stuff that we didn't necessarily know. Yeah, it really has been a great insight and an in-depth analysis of, of what he's done throughout his career, what was significant about his career, what was significant about his upbringing and his early days in the amateur side of the sport. And also about the aftermath of his career as well and obviously what he's gone on to statistically achieve. And a lot of different boxing magazines have him at certain places in lists, but, you know, lists are very subjective. And whilst we might sit here and say, you know, in our eyes, he's the best middleweight that ever lived, some people might say, oh, he was only about number five or six on their list. So it's so subjective, you know, we could sit here and argue about this to, 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 to high heaven because at the end of the day everybody's got their own personal preference as to how they believe Marvin Hagler was one of the greatest middleweights or he was just just around about the top three or four middleweight uh, that's have a greater squared circle so it's not something we're going to sit and dwell on I just think I feel from what I've seen in the middleweight division of boxing history for me tops a lot and you know that may be changed in the next few years with Canelo Alvarez and what he's been doing in the middleweight division of course but at the moment Marvin Hagler for me is defined as the he's defined the epitome of the middleweight division and as you were rightly saying about the different fighters out of the Fab Four series 
I, I would totally agree with your assessment of where you'd actually put them in terms of who sort of ruled what division at what time and you know, Duran lightweight, Ray Leonard welterweight, Hearns light middleweight, and then Hagler middleweight. And I'd say that's a very accurate way of doing it, and and really does describe you know them as fighters. And I'm pretty sure the other three fighters will come up again at some point for the career profiles vote. And I'm pretty sure at some point down the line we'll be covering their careers. But this was about Marvin Hagler and what he did in his career and what he achieved as a middleweight champion and the struggles he went through to get to where he was and to achieve what he did in the sport. It's been very, very enjoyable and a great insight into the career of marvellous Marvin Hagler. And I hope you, as the listeners, have been really enjoying the careers profiles. If you have, please let us know. Go on and leave us a comment at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter or BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook. Let us know, are you enjoying him? Do you think there's something we need to add into it? Is there something we need to take out of it? Let us know because we want to make it as much of an enjoyable listen as we do enjoy recording it. And let us know on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM, Spotify. We're across all social media platforms and podcasting apps. Just let us know what you think about it. I hope you've really, really enjoyed the career profile of the marvellous one, Marvin Hagler. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.